Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we'll speak with former tennis great Leslie Allen. She'll bring us up to date on what's going on with her life. Give us some history on the role she has played as one of the first African-American women to win championships in the sport and what she's doing today. So please have a pen, pencil, piece of paper handy or your smartphone, iPad, or whatever you use to take down some valuable information you were here this morning. And thank you for making us a part of your day, whether you're preparing for an early run or perhaps a sunrise service. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this timeout. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Leslie Allen is a dynamic speaker, life skills coach, and award-winning athlete development specialist. She's an ATA, NCAA, and WTA champion who was ranked as high as number 17 in the world. College tennis played a pivotal role in her rise to the top of her game. Late to catch the tennis bug, Leslie Allen, when she finally did get serious, decided she was going to play college and pro tennis. She knows firsthand the complexities of navigating in the world that was not designed for her as a black female tennis pro. She talks about and accomplished the Avon Championships in Detroit in 1981, being the first African-American woman to win a major pro tournament since Althea Gibson's 1958 U.S. Open victory. Join me in welcoming the great Leslie Allen to New York Sports and Beyond. Hey, Leslie, good morning. Hey, good morning, Larry. So glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you had a couple of minutes for us because you are such a busy lady with all the work you're doing with uh, Win for Life and just all the things you're doing, helping the Tennis Association, doing stuff with with TV and your own career. So you are just a busy person. So I, I wanted uh, to end Black History Month with you and all the great things that you're oh, doing. Great. And to start, I want you to take us through the journey of Leslie Allen discovering tennis and the people you saw along the road to help you know that this was the way you wanted to go? That's a very interesting question. And so check this out. Mm -hmm. There is never a day in my life that I didn't know tennis existed. Wow. Because my mother was a tennis player on the ATA circuit, loved tennis, drug me to the tennis courts in a bassinet. So tennis was just a normal part of my life. It wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do, but all of my mother's friends played tennis, so that was the norm. Um, I knew we were playing ATA tennis because of racism. A lot of those top players weren't allowed to play in the USLTA. So as a kid growing up, um, every weekend we would go to a tennis tournament. My mother would play, the adults would play, and um, I just saw that world and um, never thought that I was going to be a part of it, but I listened and learned, and, uh, you know, I'd heard of Arthur Ashe. He was a family friend. Um, I watched his career blossom, and so it was just an unusual start because it was a bit of a conundrum hmm. because tennis was seen as a white sport. So if black people outside of tennis saw you playing tennis, they said, mm, why are you playing that white sport? Or why are you trying to be white playing tennis? Or, or people that thought of real sports as being football, basketball, and the like, then tennis was seen as an effeminate sport. Why are you playing that sport? And so there was never um, like a comfort zone of, as a young kid, being around tennis. Huh. So... How did you 
put those things to the side? Was it because it was part of you? It was part of your life with your mom? But, you know, so many of us go a different way. Well, we see the parents went this way. We want to go totally the opposite way. So how did you get around those stereotypes? So as a youngster, I took a lot of tennis lessons, played a few American Tennis Association tournaments, which was the black equivalent of the USTA or the USLPA at the time. Um, but that was just really pushed from my coach, Robert Ryland, who was a legend, and from my mother and others. Um, I, I just didn't see it. You know, I didn't hit a ball between the ages of 11 and 14. Um, I just wanted to do other, every other thing. But the difference was um, in the 1970s, mid-70s, suddenly tennis was a tremendous boom. Everybody, white and black, was playing tennis. They had their mm. tennis outfits. It is, it is as if they had discovered this new sport. And I'm like, I know tennis. I grew up around tennis. What's the big deal? I know how to hit the ball. So that sort of got me back to the court, and it married with the passage of Title IX. Mm-hmm. And I was at that time living in Cleveland, Ohio, and my school had not one sport for girls to play. And my dream would have been to go to a school where I could play, uh, I would probably play volleyball, run track. I didn't know how to particularly play basketball, but basketball, you know, I would have been in all those lanes separate from tennis. Um, but tennis was a sport I could try out for the boys' team, which I did, and I was one of the better players on the boys' team. But then they told me no. And you know, when you tell somebody no, <laughs> that spurs them on. And um, long story short, because Title IX existed and I had found out about it during the time where they had told me, no, you can't play because you were a girl, I knew that legally they could not ban me from the sport. And so a lawsuit ensued, and they had to literally either stop the state tournament in Ohio, and this was, uh, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, either stop the state tournament or draw a bracket in for me. And so they drew a bracket going to going the other way for me to come and play because that technically would have satisfied allowing me to play. Um, and they drew the bracket so I would play the number one player from the entire state that was in the tournament. But um, funny story, they didn't realize he had gone away that weekend to an, for an art scholarship or something. Mm-hmm. And so they had to pick somebody else for me to play from that same school. And all their other players were already in the draw so they couldn't move them. So they had to give me somebody else from their team, which happened to be their worst player on the team, and I beat them. And so now I'm going forward in the draw. So it was a big brouhaha, big, you know, media circus and storm. You know, it would have been the kind of thing in today's world that would have gone viral. Um, but that kind of spurred me on to think, you know what? There's Title IX. Maybe I can go to a school where I can play on a tennis team. Um, Billy Jean had, had, was uh, in the next coming year beating Billie Jean, beating Bobby Riggs, and there was going to be the Virginia Swim Circuit. So all of those things were now an interesting reason to start uh, to get serious about a dream of playing tennis. And the dream was, let me see if I could get good enough to play at college. And so that was sort of the journey. I started at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I was already their number one player, so I ended up by my junior year walking on at USC, still at the bottom of the ladder, um, but still continuing to improve with the dream of becoming a world-class player 
good enough to then go out on the tour. So it was definitely an unusual journey. I mean, I was a baseliner through college. And mm. if you know my professional game, I was a servant volleyer. So that's like imagining somebody going into the NPA league and becoming a great three-point three shooter. When they get to the league is when they learn how to do it. So I was a great servant volleyer and learned how to do that on the job in the pros. Fabulous. That's the voice of the great Leslie Allen, uh, dynamic speaker, life skills coach, athlete development specialist, and my friend. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When New York Sports and Beyond returns, Leslie Allen makes history again. We'll explain on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with the founder of Win for Life Enterprises, Leslie Allen. Before we get to the pros, Leslie, let's go back a second because it's, you know, we we also are trainers for athletes helping athletes. And we talk Mm -hmm. about teachable moments, right? So, Leslie, here's let's go back to a teachable moment for our our audience, especially the young people in our audience. You could have said no. You could have said, okay, look, they don't want me to play. I can't play on the boys' team. All right, I'll just take my racket and go home. But you did not do that. You took that turn. So as we tell our our young folks, Leslie, how tough was that for you? Or was that tough for you to make that decision? And then as you go forward, dealing with the TV cameras, and and of course it's not what it would be today, but for that time, that was pretty significant. Well, I think at that time in in high school, um, they were telling me no. And, um, you know, and tennis was, was not something that they were expecting that this black urban school was going to make an impact or that they needed to pay attention to. Secondarily, my uh, high school, Glendale High School, had a reputation of being uh, state track champions, baseball champions, or whatever the championships were. So Mm -hmm. the attitude was, could y'all control that gal? Could Mm -hmm. you shut it down, please? So Mm -hmm. from even within the administration of the school, there was no support for me in this action. They did not appreciate it because I'm sure there were probably some under-the-table support for the baseball team or whatever the men's teams were. Um, and if you all could just wrangle this girl, then, you know, you can have your lovely life with the boys. So, but from a family standpoint, I was with my dad and my stepmom and it was really a sort of like divine intervention one morning to wake up and listen to my little 13-inch black and white TV in my, in my bedroom that I was so proud to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a morning show, and there was a woman on there talking about the women's law fund that was created specifically to help women who have been discriminated against um, and to, to do legal action. And she talked about the existence of Title IX. So I had not heard about it, but when she said that, I like went running to my stepmother. There's a thing called Title IX. We got to call the Women's Law Fund. So I was like their dream candidate and their dream, you know, their dream client um, to be able to leverage all of that. So it was, um, I guess we had gone, literally walked into the newsroom at the, um, at the newspaper because people read papers back in the day. And so they were sort of like, here's a girl who's got the skills, but she doesn't have a team to play on. And Title IX is a thing, like, what y'all going to do? Mm. Um, so it was interesting, you know, it was a, it, the, the, the crazy thing was people were making a big deal about it, but I knew in my heart of hearts, y'all, 
I'm not even a very good tennis player at this moment. I know this because I had grown up around the best players that, uh, from in the ATA days that had gone on to, to play on the, um, the circuit. So I knew, I knew what my pecking order was. I just happened to be the best at my school. So it was a little bit, one, embarrassing that people were getting um, so hooped up about this when I'm, I'm like, I'm not even a good player yet, was sort of my attitude. But the fact that I was breaking a barrier was important and that I was willing to stand up for myself was important. And so I didn't really have a problem in terms of dealing with the media. So then I was kind of like their media darling, so to speak. And interestingly enough, um, uh, I, somehow I got down a rabbit hole and I went back to my college yearbook online because I wanted to see what they said about me for tennis. Mm. And so they sort of inferred that, well, I kind of played on the team and did something. They didn't have one picture of me in the yearbook. And then I looked and saw how many pictures from like the opening page to the end that they had of boys that played sports. And it was like, you know, a hundred, 50% of the book was just pictures of male athletes, which really spoke to the time that uh, women really were not seen as athletes. And this was in Cleveland, Ohio. It may be different in other markets, but in that particular market, it was all about the men. It was all about the men as athletes. And, um, the women were definitely subjugated. Unbelievable. Now, with all this as a backdrop, Leslie, let's move forward mm-hmm. to the Avon Championships in 1981 and what how significant that was for your accomplishment in that tournament and then with the backdrop of what you had to do to get to where you were at that point. So the, the good news was that by the, when I got to UFC, I still was a player with immense potential, but not a lot of experience. And as my teammates, by my, I was in my junior year, by my senior year, as we were playing practice matches, if I beat them, it was a practice match. If they beat me, it was a challenge match because wow. I never really moved up in the, in, in the, in the, in the um, lineup. Looking back on it, I understand it because if you could keep a player like me at five or six, then that was sort of a good thing. And um, again, I didn't have a lot of competitive experience, so it was probably better to keep that more experienced player at a higher level because, you know, in the thick of competition, they would probably do better than me. But as a player and the time at USC, that was a little bit difficult. Like, what do I have to do to move up in the ladder? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they were beginning to talk to talk about going to play professionally and playing on professional tours. And again, when I left, um, like I guess my freshman year of college in Carnegie Mellon, I was like, you got to put yourself on a five-year plan to be world class. So five years would have been my first year having graduated from USC. And um, I can remember at USC sitting in Heritage Hall where you fill out your information about your tennis accomplishments, and literally my page at that moment was blank. Mm. But I said, sort of like, you know, you make those promises to yourself to keep you in the fight. One day I'm going to have something to put on this. So fast forward to the Avon Championships of, of, uh, of Detroit. Everybody that I'd ever played on my team, I beat them when I got to the Pro Tour. You know, it was like I was a woman on a mission. Uh, so when I got to uh, the Avon Championships, I think I had to play four or five seeded players, a couple of French Open champions, um, 
but I was just doing my thing, playing well, aggressively serving, and I knew by the time I got to maybe the, I'd say the finals, uh, when I made the finals, they started saying, first black player since, first black player since Althea Gibson. And so I would occasionally look at the news clippings. We didn't have cell phones, y'all, so there was no Instagram or no Twitter or anybody to tweet about something. The way people found out what the results were, you picked up a landline and you called them. That was the closest you could get to an instant message. Um, so I saw, wow, they're really focusing on the fact that I'm the first black player to have accomplished this. And then when I won, it was like meteoric. That was definitely viral. I was on every morning show, you know, just the pictures of me, if not live. And I, I knew from, you know, the first ball that I hit in the arena that um, I was representing our race. That's, that was just all, that, all there was to it. And, and not a lot of people had seen a player looking like me on the pro tour and not at that level. So um, I had a lot of responsibility um, and an additional pressure that other players didn't have. But that was part and parcel of, of the era, um, mm-hmm. you know. So that, that, that just went with it. But it was a historic moment. It was a great moment. Um, I don't think I even realized how impactful it was, but I still see people today that will say they remember when they heard that I won or they were at the match or when Tennis Magazine came and I was on the cover, they, they were energized. You know, Zena was like, Zena Garrison, she was like, mm-hmm. wait, Leslie won a, a WTA tournament? She used to play ATA like I do. Okay, if she can do it, I can do it. So it was that kind of um, catapult within the tennis community. And it was also interesting because it was as if I had dropped out of the sky because most young athletes, you're watching them coming up the ranks. Like we've been watching Coco, like we watched Chanda Rubin, like we watched Dina Garrison. There was no watching Leslie Allen mm. because it really wasn't until I got to the tour that anybody really paid much notice. Maybe a little bit at SC. Sort of the black community within tennis knew me, and I transitioned from being Sarah's daughter to that's Leslie Allen, mm. uh, which was a big leap to make. And even people like Arthur Ashe, who knew me as Sarah's daughter, just ripping and running, and he'd come <laughs> to the house or whatever, not interested in tennis, he was like, you're a professional now. You know, I'm like, good. Arthur sees me as a professional now. So, um it, so I think a lot of times what I would say to, to your listeners is you can read somebody's accomplishments, but the more important thing is to understand the context in which they were made. Um, because just recently I sent off to the Tennis Hall of Fame a series of pictures of me. And there was a picture of me in the lineup at USC, a picture of me playing, obviously, a picture of me as a tournament director, a picture of me as a board director. And as I looked at each one, I was surrounded by white people. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but that was the world when you go into tennis that you knew you had to absolutely be entrenched in. You Mm -hmm. basically left your community and that's where you're going to be. It's been good to see over the years that the community now has come into the tennis world. And so a person of color doesn't have to feel so isolated because they can actually look around the room or around the court or around the, the stands and see people that look like them. And that's important to have an identity, right? That's important to see 
both sides or, or all sides of what the world is about to, to understand that they were non-African-American tennis players, non-African-American female tennis players, and that's great. And you take some things, you know, from their game to approach to yours. But when you see somebody that looks like you, it, it just means something different, Leslie. Well, I think it's a different connection because obviously if there's five players walking up to the tournament on the first day, so on the first day when you arrive at a tournament, at least back in the old days, you didn't have your credential. You didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have anything. You were just coming to the player's gate. They'd let you in. You'd go into the tournament office. You'd get your credentials. So we'd all have the same thing. Our tracksuits on, our rackets, and we're walking. First player's through, next, next, next. I come, hand comes down. Can I help you? Mm. I'm coming to check in. Well, who are you? I'm one of the players in the tournament, just like those other four that you just let go. Hold on one second. I get on the phone or the walkie-talkie. There's a person out here, Leslie Allen, who says she's a player in the tournament. Pause, pause. Then they look at me. Okay, you can go through. Okay, so all of those things are sort of baggage that we carry as a person of color. Um, that gnaws at you, but you know, you're like, you see it coming before it even happens. Here it comes. Or the other thing that happens is when you get stopped, the players that just went before you, they turn because they know what's happening. She's a player too, let her through. Mm -hmm. So it's like having to get a white person to vouch for you. So those things gnaw at you. Um, and maybe they don't happen quite as much now. Um, but you can't go off. You can't go ballistic because you also, I also knew that I was paving the way for those that come after me. And if I go crazy, they may shut the door and not let anybody in. And I know from my experience in, in, in working some with the great Althea Gibson, she once told me and pointed to a door. She said, my job was, I mean, Althea's job was to bust down that door so that mm -hmm. you could walk through. And then I realized that each generation that walks through is able to gain a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, now they get a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so that was always the perspective of understanding what my role was, which was more than tennis. Absolutely. You're listening to the voice of Leslie Allen. Uh, combined nine WTA singles and doubles titles, French Open mixed doubles finalist, world champion, uh, great person doing great work. And we're talking to her on this last day of Black History Month here on New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Coming up, Leslie Allen's accomplishments off the tennis court. This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude my discussion with Leslie Allen. Leslie, what's fascinating is the uh, experience you went through on the tennis court, what you dealt with, how to interact with people despite the way they interacted with you was a great transition to help you into what you're doing now with Win for Life Enterprises. Let's talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, my passion, I mean, when I showed up on the tour, Billy Dean King said, you have certain responsibilities to put the best product out there to interact with the fans, the sponsor, and the media, right? So, and the politics of the game. So I was involved in all aspects of it and was oftentimes the spokesperson for the WTA tour. And what I found as I was now behind the velvet ropes, I'm not at the interview table, but I'm in the audience looking at the athletes. Hmm. There was never anybody behind the scenes that looked like me. So I was focused on, I know there are a lot of young people that want to play professional sports. I'm not going to dash their dreams and say, honey, that ain't going to happen, or that's probably not going to happen. 
Instead, I took the tack through Win for Life training is to develop programming to help them develop the life skills that they'll need, whether they blow up on the court or not. And if they decide they don't want to play competitive anymore, they will have training to understand how you communicate with people, how you network with people, um, and exposures and experiences so they're primed for the rest of their life. And so often our kids, people of color, don't have that access. They may have access on the playing side, but not on the business side. So what I do, whether it's with a mentoring group or whether it's coming to a particular program, it's really to teach young people how to navigate in that space, to be effective, to stand out, to make a difference. And I also am able to add a little flavor to it because you can give, I can give the standard advice, but I always have a codicil. If you're a woman or if you're a player of color, here are some other things you need to consider. So I've been doing this work for more than 20 years now. Mm. And um, it has just been rewarding to see these athletes um, transition to wherever they want to be in their careers. And for when I speak to them, for them to say, you're still making an impact. And um, so whether I'm coming and giving an uh, inspirational speech to an organization or corporate, um, I have a lot of different lanes that I can function in. And so that's sort of the business model that I like. That's, that's how I stay connected to tennis because my job job, so to speak, in a way, is being a realtor in New Jersey and mm-hmm. real estate is crazy and that takes up a lot of my time. But my, one of my passions is to give back to my sport, tennis. So, yes, I do some things with Tennis Channel. But when I am able to see an athlete succeed off the court, it is, it's, it's as good as any victory in tennis that I've had on the court. Well, it, it's you continuing to bust the door open, right? It, it's you passing on the words and the, not only the experience, but the game plan on how to keep this going so that more and more tennis players have that opportunity to perform and be a part of it and use it as a vehicle to then go forward after their tennis career is over or if it doesn't go as far as they would like to, to expand off into the business side of it because here's what we know, Leslie. It's all about the money. It's about the money. Yeah, it- it, well, it, it's it's two things. It's about the money, but it's also, particularly in sport, about the relationships. Mm-hmm. And relationships give you access. And if you start early knowing how to nurture relationships, and I'm not talking about brown-nosing people. I'm just talking about being who you are and developing your relationships within your sport. Um, you can be much more effective and you can make an impression because what happens when you are the big man on campus or big woman on campus, everybody, when you walk into the room, everybody flocks to you. And so you don't really have to do anything to say anything because everybody is ready to do something for you. You graduate and you get injured or whatever. You're not the big man on campus or the big girl on campus anymore. You walk into a room, people may turn over their shoulders and say, huh, who's that? And they're not coming up to you anymore. So even that shift that an athlete has to make can be tough mentally. But if you are equipped with the life skills that we get in women's life training, you know how to walk up to people, how to introduce yourself, how to speak, how to, what questions to ask, how to begin a dialogue, how to establish a relationship so that you're driving it as the person that you are, not the athlete that you are. Because one of the things I always tell athletes, you are not your ranking. Mm. And if they can process that, then 
there, there's still going to be struggles, but you just need to keep that in mind because treat, too often people treat you how they treat you based on your ranking. And I know that having been in the satellite section where, you know, nobody was doing anything for us to being at the top of the game where people were like, what time do you want the car to pick you up? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was the same person all along. So, so it's, it's my passion. I mean, uh, I, I love my, my family calls me professor mm-hmm. two ways. I always profess I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because I'm a list maker. Half the time I don't do half the things on my list, but I also love to teach. So whenever something comes up and it's a moment in dealing with athletes, I look at it as a moment for teaching and they say, okay, you're a professor. <laughs> so, um, but it, you know, I, I guess I, I am a teacher at heart because I love to, my, my attitude is a little bit, what is the point of me knowing what I know if I don't share? Cause you all don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, so I stay current with what's going on in today's game within the tennis world and within collegiate athletics and the whole NIL situation, you know, there's a lot that you have to navigate. And if you're in a sport your family's not familiar with and you don't understand the process of being a student athlete, you can get a lot of misinformation and you get lost in the shuffle. And my job is to really make sure you're going to be prepared for whatever it is you're going to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, breaking boundaries. Tennis uh, fame.com from the international tennis hall of fame. Let's talk about that. That's a fascinating, and it is, it, the Breaking Brownies is a digital exhibit from uh, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and kudos to the uh, Hall of Fame for being inclusive. Um, they got together a committee of a wide variety of um, tennis-related people, and I happen to be on that, and we split the world up into categories, so I was working on the European component where we were identifying um, players of color or contributors of color in the sport of tennis because they had obviously, the International Hall of Fame and others, had just whitewashed tennis as if people's accomplishments didn't count. And oftentimes, even the uh, players of color that have done well, uh, when they tell their story, meaning those um, organizations tell their story, their start in a, white, in a black program is usually erased. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. it just starts with whatever white coach they know, so to speak. So this was a great opportunity to identify 70 pioneers in the sport. Um, so in the North American section, I'm happy to say I am one of those pioneers. So I was really proud for that to happen. And I think the pride comes from not only seeing my name there, but seeing names like Ann Coger, Bonnie Logan, Bob Ryland. Those are people that I looked up to that were instrumental in developing black tennis, and thus future champions. Um, So it was really, it's been an honor. And when I look at, you know, sort of my first, whether I go back to the high school situation or being the first black woman to win a major uh, WTA tour title, first black woman to be a WTA tournament director, to be on the WTA board as a player and as a business person, um, to work for the tour sponsor, so that's a lot there, and that's what I dug up those pictures for, so people could kind of see this is what it looks like when I this is what it looked like when I was doing those jobs. Um, I think it's a great learning device. It's easy read. It's you know quick. You see a picture, you get a little bio. If you want more, you can go to read more. But for people to sort of see, oh, 
this was going on and we didn't even know it. Yes, and the website is breakingboundaries.tennisfame.com if you want to check it out. Yes, Leslie Allen is there, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, as a trailblazer. She's my guest this morning here on New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I, I want to go back a second because you just mentioned some of the many uh, opportunities and responsibilities you've had. Let's talk a little bit about the WTA board player reps securing equal prize money for women at all Grand Slams. Take me through that and the challenges and some of the uh, conversations you had to have with uh, sponsors. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, kudos to the U.S. Open. They always had, they for a very long time, for the longest, have had equal prize money. And I was actually sitting in this very room where I am now having a board call where we were trying to decide um, were we going to fight Wimbledon to have equal prize money. And so I was representing the top uh, 20 players at the time. And, you know, not everybody was willing to, like, have the spend to, you know, because whenever you're going to attempt something, you really have to have the whole strategy and whole support of all of the different entities, and that doesn't come cheaply. And in essence, we just decided uh, as a player board rep that this is too important. We don't care what it costs. We need to hire the right PR people, get a strategy together, um, enlist the top players, to support it and give them some talking points so it can happen. Um, because I think the year prior, the French Open said they were going to do equal prize money, but it wasn't. It just meant that at the, the two winners, men's and women's, was going to get equal, but everybody else wasn't equal. So we were a little bit perturbed. I'm like, wait a minute, we got played. That's not what we want. So let's go after Wimbledon in the right way. Um, so, you know, they're always naysayers and everything, but women's tennis is exciting and brings a lot of entertainment and it's not how long you're on the court or how many sets you play. It's really as a spectator, what you feel about it. And so, uh, I mean, Venus was quite eloquent, eloquent in her conversations and her writings to, uh, the all England long tennis club, which is the club that runs Wimbledon. Um, so we were able to push through and make it happen, but this had been something that we had been pushing for, for day, from the days of when I was playing. So for it to come to fruition and to know that I was part of it and that I was willing to say, no, no, we have to do this. Because if we don't do that, you know, whatever the other thing that was going to happen was going to happen. So um, I was really honored to be, to be part. You know, we got to stand up for ourselves. Absolutely. And so... It, it 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 really happened. And so those are the types of lessons and things that I think, you know, when I'm giving motivational speeches to be able to talk about what it felt like at that moment and be willing to, to step outside of yourself or take a risk or a leap of faith, but always being prepared for either outcome and be willing to deal with them. No doubt about that. You know, last time we chatted on the show a couple of years ago, you and a mm-hmm. fellow te- tennis pro, Kyle Copeland, was involved mm-hmm. in helping put together a documentary on the late, great Althea Gibson. How how mm-hmm. great was that for you, having worked with her and known her, to be able to kind of help navigate us through her real story? Well, I think the most important thing about understanding Althea's real story is to talk about the perspective of the times. And um, one, uh, Alice Marble was instrumental in shaming the US LPA to allowing Althea to play 
at the Forest Hills, which is, you know, where the U.S. Open at the time was played, because Althea Gibson had already been the ATA champion for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they're like, come on now, y'all, let her in. <laughs> um, and so the different nuances from having met her, worked with her, trained with her, um, counsel from her, I actually read to one of my mentees yesterday, literally yesterday, a letter that Althea had sent, sent to me at Wimbledon, and um, it's still sage advice that stands up today. And so I just passed it on to him because um, he was struggling with something. I was like, listen to this. And he was oh. like, oh, Coach Allen, I get it. Um, so it, it was really an honor for both of us uh, to, to be involved in that pro- project and for it to be um, her authentic story, not a made-up story, um, or to be as close to authentic as one could get. So um, we were just glad to be able to showcase something something that maybe people did not know or didn't see or understand her, how you felt her presence. And she's it, still teaching today yeah. because I read that letter yesterday to a, a kid who's going to who one of my mentees who plays tennis for a school in Rhode Island. You're right. It puts things in this proper perspective because you can appreciate, wow, she was able to overcome and achieve this while going through mm-hmm. that. <laughs> right. And, and if yeah, she can do that, for, <laughs> maybe yeah, we can do yeah. something. Which is, yeah, it was, which was cold for, what you talking about? What? Okay. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that's, that's also, and, and not to browbeat people because people think their problems are their problems. But, um, you know, when you ask, well, what have you done to resolve them? And they can't come up with anything. I'm like, well, there you go. I think, you know, you can say things like, well, do you think Arthur Ashe would have been able to win Wimbledon? Or do you think Althea would have been able to allow in the tournament if she showed up unprepared? No. So it can be a source of, of inspiration. Um, so that, definitely that's, can. I mean, yeah. Definitely yeah. can. I, I look back on everything in today's world. It's almost like, okay, whatever I was taught in school wasn't true. (laughs) And now I'm revisiting everything uh, with the lens of 2022. Yeah, it looks different, doesn't it? (laughs) It looks a little different. Very, very. (laughs) It it does look look back. But I also look forward. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I look forward. You have to. And wrapping up, Leslie, uh, the folks here would beat me with a stick if I didn't get your thoughts just in general on where we are with women's tennis going forward and, and how broad this African-American contingent is getting and, and growing. I think it is growing. So one thing I want to make sure that you let people know is what my website is, which is winforlifepro.com. Yes. And um, uh, so I know you'll tell them that. But um, I guess the best way to describe uh, the the growth of players of color in tennis is a couple of ways. You know, like I never imagined in my lifetime I was going to see uh, two black women in the finals of Grand Slam. Then that got to be old news. And then one time, uh, maybe two or three years ago, I walked into the player lounge at the U.S. Open, and not only did I not know who all these black people or people of color were, I didn't even know what country they were from, mm. which is beautiful because the world of tennis um, has changed. In, it's gone from there were maybe three black people in the in the room to now there there are many and I don't even know what country they're from and I recently saw a draw where someone played a black person each round you know 
And that usually never, never happened. Or maybe it was a black person. Maybe it was, I don't even know who it was, whether it was Felix or Tiafo, but each, each match just happened to be a person of color. And I think one was Canadian, one was Swedish, one was American. And it was like, okay, tennis is universal now. It's a global sport. All colors are playing. It's still expensive. There's still a lot of work to do. There's still racism in it. Um, but at least athletes today have seen themselves represented in the sport, unlike the era when I came up. And once again, that's incentive. That means you can do it. It just puts it right in your face. And especially in this day where you can see everything, where people who have, everybody that's got a cell phone's got a camera and they have the ability on their smartphone to see and witness anything. That's an important thing, mm-hmm. Leslie. It's still what you can see. That that's that that's what you can grasp is what you can achieve is what you see. Absolutely. Uh, 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 you, it, it's proof that it can be done. So then that gets you started. You know. So it's 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 a double-edged sword. It's the positive proof of what it can what can be done, and it's also proof of how you can blow up your your life. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Life skills are a critical part of development. Win for Life training empowers the next generation so they can succeed on and off the playing field. You want to find out more? That's an excerpt from Leslie Allen's website. It's win4lifepro.com. Win4lifepro.com. Leslie Allen, thanks so much for your education and teaching and what you've done. Uh, to help those on and off the tennis field in court this morning. And we thank you for giving us a couple of minutes. It's been my pleasure, Larry. Thank you so much. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening during the week on ESPN New York tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world producer, Ray Santiago, and the coach, Anthony Pusick, I'm Larry Hardesty. Conversation continues right here on 98.7 ESPN in New York.